0: Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille. The 150th anniversary of the Red River Resistance in 1869-1870 yielded a rich harvest of books on the history of the Métis and, of course, on Louis Riel, the man who led two insurrections against the government of Canada's authority. The story of Riel has probably been studied more than any politician, but it has evolved since he was hanged in Regina in 1885. First, it was long seen as the articulation of one civilization rising against another. It pitted Métis life on the prairies against the modern capitalist order. Some saw him as a defender of French and Catholic rights in the West. Others have interpreted Riel as the first of a long line of Western protesters against the authority of Ottawa. Some have seen Riel as a millennialist prophet, actually quite divorced from the realities of what the Métis people really wanted. Max Hammond has taken a different tack to understand Ria's impact on Canadian history and he's decided to focus on his first 31 years. Max Hammond is currently teaching in the History Department at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario and his book is The Audacity of His Enterprise, Louis Riel and the Métis Nation that Canada Never Was. It is published by McGill Queen's University Press. Max Hammond, welcome to the Champlain Society podcast. Thank you for having me on the podcast, Patrice. It's it's an honor. Max, you're the witness to yesterday for this episode. What happened on July 5th, 1864?
1: So July 5th uh, was the date, or July 5th, 1864, was the date in which Riel made what I found to be his first public appearance. Um, But let me give some of the setting first. So we're in Montreal. Um, at the Collège de Montréal, um, which is now a private boys' school near Dawson College. It's on the flank of Mount Royal, um, just to the west of Square Mile. This was a graduation ceremony, so it's a rather grand event for the time. Um, there'd be some parents and some prominent public officials, um, like previously in the previous two years, Quebec Premier George etienne Cartier, Thomas Darcy McGee, they had attended. Um, the chapel would have been specially decorated, and the auditorium would have been packed for the occasion. Um, On this occasion, um, one of the highlights would be the presentation of student work, Um, and it was a particularly important piece that would have been presented on this day was a debate staged between two students, one from philosophy and one from the class of rhetoric. Now, of course, no one knew that the young man defending philosophy was a future Métis leader or an agitator. They might not even have known his name. Um, he was a college student at the top end of, the, of his class in philosophy. But for the occasion, he had chosen a pseudonym uh, of a Roman senator, Probus. And the manuscript of the debate in the archives of the Supplician Seminary doesn't even have his name on it. I only discovered it by looking, triangulating this with another newspaper um, and discovering that indeed on the second page it states Probus is actually Luriel. Riel. So Riel was just 20 years old who at this point sees himself as kind of a romantic poet. Um, he read and he copied Victor Hugo. He was, perceived, he was preparing to defend the cause of learning. And over the next 20 minutes or so, he would give this lecture, engaging in debate with his opponent on the importance of knowledge and civilization. Um, particularly, he was responding to his opponent who took up Jean-Jacques Rousseau's classic argument that the arts and sciences were decadent and corrupting human morality. And dressing himself in this Roman senator's costume, he demonstrated the weakness of his opponent's position and declared that learning was the key to the future of the nation. So Riel was declared the winner of the debate, um, and it would become the beginning of a rather remarkable public career, and one that I think encapsulates the extremely complicated role that Riel has played in Canada's past.
0: Well, that's a fascinating discovery you've made. It took me a year to realize that it
1: actually existed, Um, And it was was the breakthrough that made me really recognize that this was something worth pursuing, that that this this project on Louis Riel actually had legs.
0: Fascinating. Now, you hit the reader with an explosive declaration in the very first paragraph of your preface. When you write that, and I quote, Louis Riel did not make the resistance, rather, the resistance has made Riel. And even that is not the whole truth. What did you mean to say by that?
1: So I think that Riel has become a, an icon of resistance, the, the, the Che Guevara, we might say, of, uh, uh, against the Canadian the state and in, in Canadian history. And I think we've accepted that a little bit too quickly. He's become this figure that we turn to to uh, recognize various moments of resistance against the Canadian state. Um, and in doing so, we've lost... Riel's perspective, um, it was a perspective that's framed by a particular experience and a particular education and one that we can learn from. Um, the problem is that we've allowed a trope of resistance to frame our perspective rather than looking at the historical record. And rather than allowing the, the story to speak for itself, we've, cre- we've fallen into the trap of following a genre or a model. And so the narrative has overwhelmed the history. And it's actually made him. It's also a, it is also a reference to a literary reference, I guess, to uh, one of the books that originally inspired this, which was The Black Jacobins, History of the Haitian Revolution by C.L.R. James. Um, and I think what James did was he brought the Haitian Revolution into the world of the Atlantic Revolution by showing that uh, Toussaint Louverture was actually a statesman. He was a political thinker. He was an intellectual. He was engaged in the Haitian Revolution, was a state-making moment. So I think that was that was also my attempt to just to
0: echo that at the same time. Now you argue that Riel's struggle was for one of recognition. How is that different from the traditional understanding of Riel and the resistance movement that he uh, helped to bring about? So I
1: think that the main interpretation of Riel is that he he kind of went looking for trouble. Um, he was a he was a rebel. He resisted Canada's attempts to impose its will. Um, he didn't really understand what Canada represented, that he, what it meant to be a nation. Um, he was guided, perhaps, by the Catholic Church. He was delusional and mad, et cetera, et cetera. But no, I don't, I don't think that's really what Riel was about. He, I think he was highly aware of what nationhood meant. He, he really understood the political stakes that were involved in having the right to participate in a project that was Canada um, and what the recognition of the political rights uh, of his people would mean, So he wanted Canada to recognize that and to show that there were active participants already in society and that the government needed to consult with these people and it needed to include these people in, in that composition.
0: I'm sure our listeners are already quite aware of what, what new interpretations you're bringing to the table. What do you think are the biggest mistakes historians have made when thinking about Louis Riel? particularly in this period of his life. There's a lot written on Riel. And yes, there is. It's, it's tough to encapsulate everybody all at once. Um, so Let's say the biggest mistakes, not the small mistakes.
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, I think a big thing is, one of the huge things would be being aware of and letting the historical context speak for itself. Too often we've let romance and, and narrative cloud our interpretation of the past without Really understanding what it meant to be in a collège classique in the 19th century, what it meant to be um, on the plains of in Red River, and to give a, a, a true, full-colored description of the world, the various worlds in which we all lived. Um, so I think we want to write the history of Riel in his own time, even while I recognize the fact that yes, we always write histories for our times. Um, and sure, there are people who will come after and probably challenge my interpretation of this, but paying attention to that context seems to me to be one of the things that a lot of historians
0: have missed. But it's an ongoing struggle for historians, isn't it? Are we not always trying to place things in the context? And why, my goodness, it's so hard to do, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> it's
1: also the, the, the thrill, too, with that, trying to say, okay, well, this is the world in which we're, I'm engaged with. What are the various problems that people are thinking about at their own time?
0: Yes. And giving an honest answer to that. It's something that, that's worth appreciating, how we, we're always struggling to understand the context. And we open we open a new dimension that people have not perceived. And you say, well, look, if you, if you look at the character in this context— then you'll have a different understanding of the way she has evolved or he has evolved. Let's talk about context. now, what kind of community was the Red River Settlement? What what is the soil from which this this young man emerges? Um, so Red River is a it's a it's a community that
1: emerges in response to a number of different um, political, economic, and social interests. Um, of course, you have the old fur trade. Um, you have Canadian and American fur traders who are uh, free traders who are also arriving, as well as old HBC and Northwest Company interests. You have some settlers, um, and you have uh, Indigenous interests, uh, whether they Cree or Neowa or Anishinaabe or Sioux or Lakota, um, as well as Métis interests, of course. So you have this community that's um, a collection of different people that have come together. Um, they're formally governed by a council that's assigned by the Hudson's Bay um, Company, but it's a council that also is paying very careful attention to a range, this broad range of political interests um, that are complicating things on the ground. Um, the example of the the, the famous Sawyer trial, perhaps
0: good case in point. Um, S a y e r.
1: Yes, so William Sawyer was uh, uh, he was brought to, brought to court for having illegally tra- um, traded furs with him, with the Americans, and Riel's father took his side and basically forced the. Company to back down in, in terms of pushing for a conviction. He was convicted, but uh, the charges were uh, were dropped. Um, so he was. So Riel's father, I, he plays the plays the role of a of an antagonist to the state, but at the same time, he becomes the recipient of considerable state funding. So the the, the community is aware of various tensions, aware of uh, the need to negotiate and to uh, offer um, some reconciliation. So it's about accommodating a number of different people, a number of different interests, and recognizing that there's no one voice determining everything.
0: You, you really depict uh, a fascinating society. Uh, again, to remind our listeners, we're talking about, about 10,000 people in the Red River Settlement. Um, and and this Sawyer case really raises the the Riel name, doesn't it? I mean, Riel is a quite at the root of the of the uh, of the Métis community, but it really raises the profile and the prestige of of the Riel family. Well, let's talk about his family then. What kind of family was he born into? His
1: Mother is uh, Julie Lagimogier and his father is Jean Louis Riel, or I Just call him Louis Riel. Um, often you'll see in some sources he just uh, Louis Riel. Um But this is a family that um, gives him anchors him into um, a community which is tied to um, the east bank of the of the of the, uh, of the Red River. Um, it's old Lagumojere land, land that was given to uh, Jean-Baptiste Lagumogier, um which connects him to a uh, old uh, settler um, uh, family um, but also connects him to a, um, a family which has long been associated with the hunt coming out of uh, Pembina, that's his father. Um, and giving that, those those two different groups and, and then the allies that branch out from the, the the various genealogical links gives him allies, it gives him a grounding, it gives him a sense of being. Um, and that becomes really key to Riel's understanding or to meet the understanding of, of the world and understanding of how politics and and uh, and society is constructed um so it's it's a big part of uh all of his um well, was thinking of how you how and why you actually are doing what what you're doing
0: so he comes from a prominent family
1: yes up and coming family who is fairly well established. They have land. Well-connected, I think, is perhaps the best way of, of putting it.
0: It's something we'll explore a little later because you do emphasize connections and networks, and it's, I think it's a fascinating part of your book. Why was little Louis Riel sent to Quebec for his studies?
1: Part of a project which the, the bishop at the time, and, uh, Antoine-Alexandre Taché, comes up with to educate and bring Métis boys into the, the, the priesthood. Um, and so... There's a, four young boys who get sent to um, Quebec for education. Um, and Riel would have been one of the most promising children of the time. I, that's, and that's kind of the traditional understanding. Well, so Taché wants to set up a elite group of uh, Métis priests. At the same time, Riel has family in Montreal. Um, his aunt and uncle live in Mile End. His father had been educated just north of, uh, of Montreal as a child as well. Um, he had been spotted and baptized in Montreal, so there are old connections of the family, which linking him back to Montreal as well. Um, and the chance for education in uh, in Montreal would have been seen as um, a great opportunity for this family to make its mark yeah. and to um, consolidate its position in the in the community. So it was a moment of uh, of of yeah, pride, but also of continuing family connections, I think.
0: How long will he stay at the Collège de Montréal? So Riel is
1: there, um, I'm just doing the calculation in my head again, um, from uh, from 58 to 64, but um, just into the into March of 65, rather. Um, so he's there for seven years. And
0: he brings to it, I mean, or, I, I want to capture, I want to hear you Uh, describe how he emerges from the Montreal experience. He goes back to the Red River Settlement in 1868. And so in his mind is a blend of Métis thinking, but also, obviously, some Catholic thinking. He's exposed to the Western world. How would you summarize his thinking, say, by, by 1868, as he returns to the Red River Settlement? What do you think is in his mind?
1: Yeah, so I think I, mean, I think you're 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 right to to draw attention to his his youth. Um, he he's a young man and he's he's looking for opportunity. Um, there's potentially a little bit of uh, disappointment or awareness that some people might be disappointed at the fact that he didn't make it into the priesthood or he didn't choose to go out and join the priesthood. Um, there's maybe a chance of understanding that he has he has made other connections, uh, economic connections, which, which he might be able to capitalize on. Uh, his father famously, when he went um, east, brought back with him a, a machine for carding wool. Um, and so Riel is aware that he has access now to capital and to contacts in the east, which he might be able to use in Red River. So he's looking for things to do, and he's looking for ways in which he can uh, be of service to his community, be of service to his family um and at the same time i think we also have to be aware that he's come back um 2 years after 2 perhaps, possibly 3 years after his father has died mm. um and so he's got a sense of having to step into the role of the uh the uh, the not not, not quite like the patriarch but the, the 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 head um of of a family um, and to support his family in that other in respect, so he's had he has a good education, he has um, resources in this sense, and there are ways in which he he's taking on these responsibilities.
0: you make the point, max, uh, many times in your in your book, and I think it's it was very revealing to me. You talk about the significance of and I hope I say this pronounce this properly, Wakatoan thinking oh to Riel, can you explain what Wakotowin thinking might be? And and would this be what brings Riel back to to the Red River settlement?
1: That's a big part of what I'm trying to argue here, is that his sense of being related, the sense of being connected. Um, so I've taken the term Wakotowin from, uh, and I'm I, um, also, like you, I'm not quite sure exactly how the pronunciation is, um, but it's drawn from the work of a number of uh, Métis scholars um, that are working on this, but most particularly that of Brenda MacDougall. Um, her book um, and see it, Canadian Historical Review article um, really brought that to the fore. And then once I started looking at Rail's writing, you start to see, oh, he's talking about relationships over and over again. So this idea of being related, um, being connected to people, being connected to the land, this is formative to Riel's understanding of, of family, of place, of, of being, of, of, his, of his identity. And it gives him his sense of being. Um, and, I mean, uh, one of the important things that Brendan McDougall has stressed is that uh, Wakotowin is um, it's important because it's something from that emerges from within the Métis um, nation. It's not something that is imposed on, on the on the on the, this group by outside forces like the church or like the the fur trade uh what the need for, for pemmican it's something that it's indigenous to the northwest and it's that sense of relationship that nurtures the community uh, and the nation and gives them a, an identity and self consciousness and i think riel it, it's clear in his personal communication it's clear in his his um uh in his letters um that this is a metaphor that can stretch across a whole um, arc of political um, thinking, and that, that there's a concluding um, line that he writes to the Bishop Bourget in Montreal in 1875, which I think captures it very nicely. He says, "I hope you can you can include the Metis family in your pr- the Metis nation in your prayers. It may be a small nation, but it is part of your family." And so Riel sees family as a metaphor that can extend to the Catholic church itself. He's almost indigenized a Catholic thinking. The the understanding that I have of Wokotoin is more about the relatedness. And the. for me, I guess it was about the sense of responsibility um, and the the connectedness and how, what are the obligations, what are the the connections, what are the, the resources you can pull on through that and, um, yes, there are certain, certainly a power to it, certainly a what, what that gives you access to. Um, but um, for me, it was really about the being connected to other people.
0: He moves back to Red River the year after Confederation. Do we have any sense of what his view was of Canadian Confederation? Obviously, he did not have the right to vote. No, very few people did in 1867. But do we know? What his views were of Canada in 1867, 68?
1: Um, yeah, I think we can we can discern what his vision of what Canada was, what Confederation was. Um, he there's there's letters of him writing to um, uh, friends um, in in Quebec asking them for um, copies of uh, early debates on Confederation. Um, we we know that he was following some of these discussions. He was reading the newspapers about this. Um, he's writing to other other people about how, how you should frame requests for provincial status. So he he thinks that Canadian Confederation is promising. It is something in which the metis can it's a framework in which the metis can operate. Um I think that he sees that there is a place and a role for the metis to um, to participate in Canadian political life.
0: And to gain recognition.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think that actually becomes exaggerated as, as he goes further in his life too. Um, he really thinks that the Métis can can provide salvation. They can bring like Canada into an enlightened state that they can educate them about the great things that, that could happen.
0: Was that the audacity of his enterprise? What do you mean by that wonderful title? <laughs> <laughs> the audacity of his enterprise. Yeah, the, the,
1: the audacity. <laughs> that comes from a quote that was given by... Uh, a newspaper article written about Louis Riel. Um, actually, it was about Riel's father. And, uh, every, and the newspaper writer was pointing out that everybody talks about who Riel is, this audacious young man, but they don't write about his father very much. But to get to your question, I guess, um, yes, he is, He is. his audacity is trying to bring, for me, anyways, his, his audacity is trying to bring Metis perspectives into Canada. It's about speaking back to the Canadian um, political body, um, and trying to reshape that kind of shape Confederation to fit, uh, Métis perspectives in there, um, bringing Métis politics into Canadian society, into political life. And that's the, the, uh, the audaciousness of it in some ways is, I think maybe it's from our perspective now that, oh, how dare he try to do that at the time. I don't think I mean, it was a little, it was daring, but it wasn't as outrageous as it is now, given our history of, of the history of dispossession that, that has been seen since then.
0: I think, I think your book goes far in explaining why the Métis community picked him to lead. You're, you're describing a very young man who is already very articulate, charismatic, I would say, uh, who's also got some interesting, fresh ideas to present to his people. Why was the Métis community so willing to give this twenty-three-year-old, this twenty-four-year-old, the right to speak on their behalf? I, you know, you don't have that very often. <laughs> no, I think you're, you're, you're. It's, it is
1: quite amazing, and I, maybe I, I presented a little bit too, um, too logical. Um, I, but I think it, he is, he is a remarkable figure for his age. Um, at the same time, I don't. I think he kind of made more of the situation than anybody might have expected initially um so when he comes back he is still young he doesn't have the connections um he doesn't well, he, has, he has some of the connections but he doesn't have the reputation yet established they're like okay well we we know what he can what he might be possible but the big reason he gets called and i think is because he speaks english and french um, and then from there they begin to recognize, oh, he's actually quite capable of doing a whole bunch of things. There are others who speak English and French, but he's able to do that in such a, uh, a direct and clear manner. And on top of that, he becomes a, a figure who can talk about the rights and talk about the um, theorize, but to to take on um, his opponents in, in a public sphere like James Ross and say, no, this is really what we're standing up for. Um, and to take on the uh, other other opponents. Um, so I think like if I, if I, if I look at the example of the execution of Thomas Scott, for instance, that famous moment, March, 1870, when there is this, uh, rebel rouser Thomas Scott, who being, um, who's been put on trial by the Métis, the argument of, often becomes, well, Riel is responsible for this, but he didn't actually make the decision. He wasn't on the, the jury for that. He wasn't, um, a judge for that he basically accepted the will of the community. And I, I think um, that's a big... I mean, he, he, he later explained to Donald Smith that, yeah, I have to I have to do this to get the community to respect me. But he's doing this because the Métis um, elders and Métis community members are saying, this is what we need to do in order to bring things back under control, to stop the, the, the shooting and the chaos that's happening. And so he's not totally in control. He's following... In
0: many ways, speaking for what the what the native community has asked for, it comes back to this desire to be recognized. Yeah, yeah. In fact, let, let's let's move on beyond the the, the events of sixty eight. Sorry, sixty nine, seventy. I think one of the most surprising passages of your text was his campaign after eighteen seventy, and the way he worked his networks and the degree to which he traveled through the eastern half of the continent. He's at home in the Red River community, obviously, but he's also at home in Quebec and, remarkably, in various parts of the United States. What do you mean by emphasizing all this? You don't, we don't often picture Louis Riel on a train or, as you describe him, as an expert horseman. Uh, that was the hard reality of this man's life, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. No, he – I mean, it was, it was, I think that's
1: a big That's a big challenge in terms of understanding maybe history and where maybe history fits into – um, Canadian history that, that they are a, really a this was a borderlands history of, of moving across vast distances vast um, spaces with uh, remarkable uh, agility remarkable ability and um, to, to, to bring that reality onto the end of the, page, end of the page rather than saying oh this is a, a Red River community I Say, no this is a community which is connected across the continent um, makes a lot more sense um, and that the connections that he's established, and I, I think it brings back that that early connections that he makes in, in, in Montreal, makes within the Catholic Church networks, he makes with the newspaper writers, um, but then um, across with other traders in, in Minnesota and North Dakota, these are um, the kinds of skills that many um, Métis people would have already had just by being part of that Okutuan, well, part of that that, I, that connectedness. Um, so the real makes the most of that um, and translates that, makes it even bigger, I think, by including the the Eastern Canadian perspective um, and trying to get them on the Métis uh, nation campaign.
0: Of course, you know we, we all know uh, Louis is eventually exiled. He'll wind up in um, in the United States. Uh, he'll get married. He will get American citizenship until he's called back by his community in Saskatchewan in 1884. But you end your story in 1875. Why did you stop there? 1875 was um, well, it's an opportunity
1: to think of it a second volume, but
0: uh... Uh, that's, that's going to be my last question, but I hope so, Max. <laughs> But why, why 1875? Why volume one in 1875? <laughs> well, because I, what it does, it, it, allows, it
1: allows me to overcome this overwhelming condescension of posterity, I think. And E.P. Thompson's phrase works so well here, to, to overcome the overwhelming condescension of posterity, to escape the doom of the hangman's noose. Um, one of the French reviewers for the book commented that this presents Riel in a crepuscular light. And I think that evokes very well the the sense of promise and the opening that um, we see in 1875. Riel views the world, he he views politics, Métis politics, Quebec politics, Canadian politics, through a uh, a lens of possibility at this time. And if we want to talk about the horizons of possibility, the the sense of perspective, the sense of Riel's own, um, his own bias or his perspective, this allows us to get at that. so I had always aimed to make this an intellectual history, and I thought that was one way of uh, kind of thinking about well, what, are, what is we all thinking about. How is he? What are the ideas that that are that are shaping his actions? Um, but it was a it was it's kind of a mental trick um, to just to throw off the, the 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 hangman's noose and to inspire a new way of looking
0: at. I it. Mean, in 1875, he has not been. Declared insane. No, uh, you're you're saying you're depicting again a man who still has all sorts of opportunities ahead of himself in 1875. Do you think he would have been happy with his state in 1875? Do you think that at 1875 he was successful or not?
1: I think Riel, when he, he we there's some letters he writes back to the to um, his family saying. It's wonderful how everything is working out, all of the, uh, the American presses on our side. There's huge support for the Métis Nation. Um, he is quite um, enthralled by how popular he is. He's going to conventions, uh, for instance, at the saint jean Baptiste uh, Society uh, meetings, and they're supporting him. So he's really enthu- you know, amazed at how much enthusiasm he's being greeted with. Um, at the same time, that's it's a bit uh, mediated by the fact that he is um, exiled, um, that uh, that he's forced into to leave politics for, for a few years, and that may be part of his um, this period in which he ends up in the asylum in, in Quebec. Um, but I think that he he did see the campaign as achieving recognition for Métis rights and the, the Métis amnesty. At the same time. If we will go down 10 years down the road, no, he is starting to see the, the impact of much larger forces at work here than what he was able to face up again. So in 1875, his perspective is, yes, this is, this is, this is possible. We can do something.
0: Um, but it will not um, last. It's bittersweet. Now I, I teased you a little bit about the, your title, the audacity, the audacity of his enterprise. Let me let me ask you then about the subtitle of your book, which is also very enticing: "Louis Riel and the Métis Nation That Canada Never Was." What do you mean by that? Well, uh, that was Riel proposed a
1: challenge. He, he 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 said, "Look, Canada can be a Métis nation, and it it never it never really achieved that." Um, and I'm responding a little bit to uh, the idea that um, Canada is this collection of, of different diverse interests, uh, that uh, it has Aboriginal roots. Um, responding to John Wilson Saul's um, this depiction of Canada as an native nation, I don't think Canada has, has really grasped that nettle yet. Brielle pro- proposed that. And I think that Canada is still faced with Many of the challenges that he posed to Canada at the time, the inability to really recognize and to include Indigenous perspectives in the body
0: politic. The response he got from the government of Canada was a flat no. Right, exactly. (laughs) But even today, there there has been this sense that, oh,
1: multiculturalism is kind of Canada's a Métis nation. That doesn't really... Um, include Indigenous perspectives, and Riel proposed that as a possibility.
0: The audacity of his enterprise. Exactly. That is, the, <laughs> that is
1: it. Here, here we could go, and um, it, we haven't achieved it yet. I think that would be the, the story.
0: I want to ask you the classic Champlain Society question, Max. Uh, you were able to find new sources to write this book. What in particular stands out in your mind?
1: I mean, of course, the the, the debate at the Submission archives was, was huge, was a huge finding. Um, and I think that's particularly important to recognize given the current state of the Solstition, um archives at the moment. Uh, we've just heard that the um, staff has been let go and that there is no clear um, sense of how these archives will be available to the public or to researchers uh, for the next little while.
0: This is important. Yeah. This is very important.
1: Yeah. That 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 document and that, that, that ability to spend months in in those archives was hugely important, and I, I can't stress the the role that uh, religious archives have played in in putting together this this, uh, this story. The other um, key connections I was able to make were were some smaller archives in the in the diocese in North Dakota, and there again, very small amount of staff. Um, but they were able to send me copies of documents which I really needed. And then here also in Montreal, the Archdiocese of the uh, the Archives of the Archdiocese uh, of uh, in Montreal, having access to those um, archivists, their support is makes doing this kind of work possible. And without that, I don't think uh, yeah we we'd have this kind of book.
0: It allows you to throw a different light on the whole subject. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to finish with you, Max. Um, you, you've had a yeah. You've, you've come to this in, in a very unusual way, I have to say. You were born and raised in PEI, mm-hmm. but you studied in the Netherlands, then in Ireland, and then in Budapest. How does a young man with that kind of path get captivated by Le Riel? So I I'm not I was never a
1: Canadianist I would never had much interest in Canadian history um, I was interested in European history and in terms of the formation of nations and nationhood um, I was, did work on the formation of the Scottish nation and and the, and the Hungarian uh, nation how those places came to be recognized as, as uh, politically relevant so when I went to teach at the University of Prince Edward Island for a couple of terms. Um, I recognized the fact that there was a story about the Métis Nation, which hadn't really—I didn't think—had been properly dealt with. And the more I read uh, Flanagan and Stanley, and others, I thought, "Oh, there's just another. There's more to this story that he could tell." And through that, starting get engaged with uh, Métis scholarship um, and uh, community perspectives, it, it just opened up as a, as a, as a fascinating story. And it's become um an amazing discovery for my for me as to how this happened.
0: Well, it's fascinating to see how getting inspiration from abroad allows you to shed a different light uh on our own Canadian experience. It's it's a precious thing. I think that was the, the big thing for me. Having gone to other places and looked at other histories and then come back and say,
1: Oh, but this is similar but different, but also, extremely fat. So that was that was a big part of it, having that comparative.
0: Well, it's a great story, and you you tell it very well. Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts on on Louis Riel, the Red River Settlement, and the the first half, let's say, of, of Louis Riel's life. Thank you. My, my pleasure. Thank you. My guest today was Max Hammond at Queen's University in Kingston. His book is The Audacity of his Enterprise, Louis Riel and the Métis Nation that Canada Never Was. It's published by McGill Queen's University Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at champlainsociety.ca, where you'll find more about what the society does. There's even a place to become a member and a sustainer of the society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's past. Please let people know how much you like these dialogues by using whatever social media you use. We'd be really proud of your support. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who are making an investment in the hard work of bringing to life original documents in Canadian history. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, and the Press of University of Ottawa. My name is Patrice Dutille. This interview was recorded in the middle of a pandemic on August 26, 2020, by our highly skilled producer, Jessica Schmidt. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.